Alright. Damn. Well, that's hopefully that's live. <laughs> Alright. In Alhamdulillah wa kafa. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Rasulil Mustafa. Wa ala ibadi al-Ladina Tadra. Wa man bihudahum ihtada. Wa bi'athari ahlil Madina Taktafa. Wa ba'ad. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Bienvenidos a todos. Juan Inglaitse. Bakhair Raghle. Khushamadid. People Khushamadid. And of course, Swagatam, Swagatam. So I apologize. Uh, given my own <laughs> uh, punctuality standards, but today, boy, technology. What can we say? Technology. That, in case you're wondering, is still my. <laughs> my couch <laughs> my resting couch people my resting couch so right i'm just trying to set this because i've got it on um youtube live as well Acha, cha, cha. since it's live i think i should give the molajat tash a little twirl <laughs> Right, so what's going on, people? What is going on? God, it's so hot today. Yes, salam. Yes, salam. This, you see, it's it's not normal in the UK for it to be this hot. So you gotta understand. You gotta understand our predicament. First world problems, people. First world problems. All right. So, ahlam wasahlam bikum. Right, those of you just tuning in, you can click like, click share. It is running live on youtube as well i'm taking questions as always people as always q a i've uh, restricted the questions to facebook because it's much easier to kind of just take them from one place all right get that what's going on uh, so it's much easier. So if you are on Facebook, you can log into Facebook and post your questions from there. That will most likely make things a hell of a lot easier than to try and tackle uh, YouTube. And it's, es muy complicado. Es muy complicado, people. Es muy complicado. So what is going on? What is it that is bothering the people? What's up, mi gente? What's up, man? What are some of the... The questions are coming straight in. Yes, salam. Yunus, Ayub, what does noon in Surah Al-Qalam mean? <laughs> what does noon in Surah? Oh, yes, salam. I haven't even shared this from my other. Toba, toba, toba. How do I blaspheme? <laughs> that I haven't even shared my own life. Yeah, <laughs> What is going on? What is going on? Right, so, un momento, un momento, people. Feel free to post your questions whilst I just click share on this. Right, so. I'm just doing that, people. Just doing that. Right, okay. We're in. All these extra security passwords here. 
करना पड़ता है यार करना पड़ता है इट्स द इट्स द डिमांड जनता की डिमांड है दिस डे नीड पीपल यू नो इफ यू डोंट हैव अ पासवर्ड ऑन योर फोन देन यू ओनली हैव योर सेल्फ टू ब्लेम यू नो द मोबाइल फोन इज द नंबर वन कोर्स for <laughs> it is the number one cause for for all kinds of catastrophes of our age people for all kinds somebody said oh i don't like your mustache yaar kya karte ho yaar i don't like your mustache yaar kya yaar why are there so many haters in this world yaar <laughs> ye प्यार करने वाले कहा है वे आर दोज हू लव इन दुरान वाई डज अल्लाह टेल द प्रॉफिट टेल द पीपल द स्क्रिप्चर टू रिफर टू देव बीन क्रोपटेड राइट सो दिस थाइज इन टू ए क्वेश्चन विच आई वॉन्सर्ड प्रीवियसली ऑन डू वी बिलीव दट दौरा uh the previous scriptures jewish scriptures or the israelite scriptures and and the bible oh yes salam is that me right so right do we feel that the bible and the torah and these things have been corrupted now first of all just to clarify many people may be surprised that this is a little footnote if you like the torah is not the scripture that was revealed to moses musa alayhi salam uh the torah is a combination it's of scriptures okay so it's 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 perhaps like saying the jewish bible okay not all of those books were revealed to moses so in the quran to be specific allah never says in the quran that we gave moses the torah and but rather that we gave him the book or we gave him a uh, revelation or we gave him the furqan or we gave him the the criterion but it, he never says we gave him the torah so the torah was to bani israel so it includes the message of moses and many others that come after him so allah does speak about the torah and bani israel but he doesn't say it was musa alayhi salam who received the torah now so i'm not saying that the message of moses was not a part of the torah it was a part but it's not the torah okay just to be specific so you understand that in the torah um you will see the the rulings like god mentioning that and we told the uh, and we mentioned in Uh, that wakatabna fiha and in it in the torah it was written that 
nafsu bin nafsi wal aynu bil ayni that a soul for a soul and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth um you i'm sure you're familiar with these laws these laws were revealed much after moses because these are the laws that the israelites became acquainted with once they were in captivity and the generations that ensued under the rule or in in Babylon. So whilst they lived in Babylon, uh, the century that they spent there in captivity, and then maybe some of them that weren't captives, but they lived there. So the law of Hammurabi, uh, it mentions this. In fact, it's the actual wording of the law of Hammurabi, which predates Moses. So you'll see that the the text, uh, not text, but the kind of uh, um, the clay tablets that have been found uh, with the law of Hammurabi and these things and the epic of Gilgamesh and these that date to almost 4,000 years ago. Um, these had these very laws coded with that specificity so it mentioned that as a life for a life and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth word for word it is exactly what is then the scripture of the torah and then the quran quotes that so it couldn't have been from the time of moses because at that time the israelites hadn't crossed over and established the kingdom of israel and they hadn't then later on been taken into captivity and spent several hundreds of years in Babylon, uh, where they did. So just to clarify, okay, so so you guys have a, a better understanding. This also ties into an important question, which is what is the Sharia? What is the Sharia? Um, and this is why... Uh, you will see, and that's something I'd like to come back to in a, in, in a moment, but just to answer this question. So you'll, you'll see that the Sharia is simply a solution to people's problems based on their surroundings. Okay, so it's not something um, um, that is alien to the people. It won't be alien to them. Okay, so um, because I've been... Uh, asked about this recently that people had had questioned uh, me on a few occasions that what do we believe about the sharia is the sharia sacred and holy and that's a, a deep uh, discussion in and of itself so what we can say is that although the sharia has come sharia simply means your rules and laws now, the laws were never meant to be static. They were meant to reflect the needs of the people. To state that the laws today must be static as they were 1400 years ago, but then to acknowledge that, by the way, all the laws prior to that were always changing makes very little sense. Okay, so Allah says that ja'alna. Uh, that we made for all of these prophets and these people, and there were countless prophets, shir'atan wa minhaja. Likullin ja'alna minhum shir'atan wa minhaja. That we placed for each and, and every one a different kind of rule and law. 
And that makes no sense if Allah was trying to seek out a sacred law. Because then Allah would have had just one law. There would just be one law for everybody for all time. And if the laws are always changing for all the prophets, and, and there's countless prophets, by the way, countless. So if the laws are changing for them, then it makes no sense to say that this law would be static now. And even though a thousand years would go by and it would still be always static. I mean, the underlying, the underpinning themes will be static. So Allah says, that really, all that Allah is commanding you about is He simply commands you to justice and kindness. And humanitarian efforts that you give to people who are less fortunate, that you maintain good ties. That is it. That is the summary of all the ahkam in Islam. Now their manifestations will continue to evolve and change with the day and age and with people's needs. So as Umar ibn Abdul Aziz said, that تحدث للناس قضايا بقدر ما أحدثوا. So that people's rules will always continue to occur, continue to be renewed, that so long as they continue to innovate and develop okay so yeah so just to clarify that uh and i uh, and this is a uh this is actually a um i feel anyway a uh the source of a great misunderstanding um because once you understand that you realize there isn't really this god isn't trying to get you into some kind of political power because there is no sacred system per se. The system is simply a human system. And I refer to this as the as the Kintsugi hypothesis. <laughs> now people are gonna say, yeah, <laughs> the Kintsugi hypothesis people the kintsugi remember that so what do i mean by the kintsugi hypothesis all right one the problem is i speak in too many in in too much terminologies <laughs> yeah technical this is the problem you know i i get too technical <laughs> so <laughs> To understand the Kintsugi hypothesis, I need you to buy my book. <laughs> That's called marketing, people. So the Sharia, according to me, is explained by the what it is what I call understood by the Kintsugi hypothesis. Now, this, ladies and gentlemen. Muchachas y muchachos, this is the ancient Japanese art. I need you to pay attention to this. This is the art of where you salvage a broken dish or bowl or glass or cup. 
you salvage usually a piece of pottery, a kind of utility that you salvage by joining it from the cracks, but with a kind of precious lacquer. So the kind of cracks that you put, usually golden kind of lacquer is used to fix that, uh, that broken utensil, whatever it is. Um, and this in and of itself is an art. It's an amazing art. It stems from the Japanese uh, philosophy of wabi-sabi. <laughs> I'm not making this up, Yar. Yar, when I say these things, maybe you might think that is Mufti just making this stuff up right there. <laughs> Besides spending all my time watching TV series, I do occasionally read as well, people. <laughs> so there is a an amazing Japanese philosophy called wabi-sabi. <laughs> Not the wabi, the wabi. <laughs> Not the wobbler wabi. <laughs> wabi. Oh, oh. This is wabi, this one, wabi-sabi. <laughs> this is true, by the way, I'm not making this up. So the philosophy of wabi-sabi, it refers to seeing beauty in frailty, in... Uh, in decay, in in broken kind of aspects of life. Why? Because these things are human, all too human. These are, and they can be beautiful from a perspective. You see, because the old Eurocentric way of seeing beauty is all about symmetry, and it's about attempted perfection. But the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi <laughs> <laughs> of our wobbler brothers. <laughs> so in Wabi Sabi, they saw beauty in imperfections. And that's an amazing uh, philosophy in and of itself. But from there, you get this Kintsugi, the art of Kintsugi, of, go of fixing with gold uh, broken items. Now, this, <laughs> this is, this Kintsugi hypothesis is by what I explain the Sharia to be. The Sharia in its essence, in its essence, people, is taking the broken, the frail, fragile, hurt circumstances of human beings in their social that environments and then mending them, joining them, fixing them with a precious lacquer. That kintsugi is how we understand the sharia. So the sharia is, it is beautiful from that perspective that you have this kind of this piece of art in front of you, but it is in essence human broken problems that it is taking and fixing. It is not something holy in the sense that it's introducing a whole new divine 
kind of alien rule. It's not. It's taking a a broken human society, using their solutions and providing them with with a response and with some parameters. That's what the Sharia is. Now you can understand why I said I explain it by the Kintsugi hypothesis. All right, people. <laughs> you probably thought when I said that, that Mufti's about to do another. Is this a blag? <laughs> is this from the Balagat? You know, Imam Malik would often say, Balagani, uh, that it has reached me. <laughs> Balaga in Arabic means to reach. So, where Imam Malik presents a hadith, but he doesn't mention the chain and he just goes direct. These are called the Balag. <laughs> the Balags of Imam Malik, the Balagat. So, just in case you thought I was doing a blag, <laughs> obviously, my, with a different context today, like some people, they do balagat. So this was not a balagat. And you could from that also say it's perhaps some of these people who do these blags, maybe they've misunderstood the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, who said, anni, that do balag on my behalf. As in, when representing my words. But this didn't mean blag. <laughs> As some of these Mulvis have started to blag. <laughs> That's not what the hadith meant. That ballighu anni. That blag. It meant balag. <laughs> so, it's understanding meant misunderstanding. It happens at times. You know, there's usually an understanding. Sometimes there's a misunderstanding. Right, so what else is bothering the precious people of Facebook? Mi gente, mi gente, what's going on? Lukman is saying, be true to yourself. Video, can you end this live with a similar motivational message? Oof. We'll have to see. We'll have to see, people. You know, sometimes you have to be in the right mood. You have to be in the right element. And then the words, they have to, they have to come from the heart. Dil se jo baat nikalti hai, asar rakhti hai. In the words of Allama Iqbal, that the words that they kind of, they, they come from the heart, they impact the heart. Par nahi taqate parwaz magar rakhti. The words may not have wings, but they are capable of flight. Allah, Allah, Allah. Right, so what else is going on? Mufti, you have a clip on wearing gold and silk for men. There is a narration. Where he holds, where the Prophet holds gold and Ummah and says this. Um... Was there a fault? I've explained all of that. You see, the interesting thing is, the interesting thing is, you've watched my clip, yet not watched my clip. Yar, uff, 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 uff. Dukhota You know the Buddhist concept, dukkha. There's dukkha in this world, dukkha. There's just sorrows and 
that's what I get afflicted by when I hear these things that you watch my clips but yet you don't watch them. It's dukkha, people, dukkha. <laughs> you need to rewatch my clips. Otraves, <laughs> otraves. So, ves un ves y otraves, time and time again, people. So in there, I actually explain my understanding of the hadith that yes, the Prophet وسلم, he, if he said that, what he was trying to refer to, this was simply an encouragement to stay away from a culture that was quite alien to the Arabs. You have to understand that. You see, you can't, you see the mistake people make today is they want to think about Islam they want to think about the lifetime of the prophet, about the companions. They want to think about these things. Right, I'm live again. There's a subtle connectivity issue. I was actually, uh, I was actually worried that there may have been an issue. I was on the phone today for hours. God damn, almost two hours uh, uh, to the internet provider, Virgin. A nightmare. <laughs> they duped me into switching broadband providers and now they've been playing up and they've been impossible to get hold of. So, um, and they, I've been assured that hopefully things will be fixed tomorrow. So I was in two minds about po postponing today's session, but I thought, let's do it. So hopefully it'll be okay. Right. Uh, must be some native. I don't see it as disrespect. Uh, I don't know what that's talking about. No lo sé, no lo sé. I don't know. I don't know, people. La adri, la adri. What are some questions? Yes. Yeah, so my, the thing I was trying to explain is you have to understand the background of where the Prophet ﷺ was speaking from. Okay. And I would really advise anybody who's serious about Islam. You see, Muslims are of two kinds, people. Since I'm giving you terminologies, I'll give you a few more. <laughs> Muslims in my book are in my book are of two kinds. There's Muslim with a capital M and Muslim with a regular M. Allah Allah Allah. People, I'm taking you into the mind of a mufti here. So bear with me, bear with me. You see, all Muslims and some maybe people who ain't even properly Muslim anymore, but were from a Muslim background are Muslim with a regular M. That simply means that you are Muslim from a cultural, identitarian, ethnicity perspective. If Islam is a kind of ethnicity, if I can extend it to include that, to mean that, um, that, that sense, the 1.8 billion Muslims with a regular M are Muslim like that in the world, meaning that they identify kind of like ethnically as a Muslim. So meaning they, they, they see diet, food, maybe some kind of cultural clothing, things like that. And they may be concerned. Now, from this category of people, you may get people who are concerned about Islam, 
but really Islam for them is nothing more than an ethnicity. So they they may fight for the rights of Islam, but to them fighting for the rights of Muslims is akin to fighting for racial rights. And I'm not dissing this. I think that's good. Fine. People should do that. But that's all it really is for them. So, for example, they could be fighting for racial rights, but they happen to be fighting for rights that help you identify as a Muslim. Now, then there's Muslims with a capital M <laughs> who actually are interested whatever in whatever that may mean, but are interested in the message of Islam. That what was Islam about? To them, this is a deeper message. It's not just an ethnicity. It's not just a tribalism, a sense of belonging, but it's a journey to the unknown, maybe. It's it's a it's a discovery. It's a reconnecting with God. To these people, they will they are on a uh, a path of inquiry that they will be seeking things they will be trying to learn things they will be asking questions about their lives sometimes from other people sometimes as a soliloquy okay they will be asking themselves asking these questions out aloud that what is this why am I here? Why did does God want this? So these people, to them, Islam is it's 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 a much deeper connection. Even though ironically, to some of them, the apparent connection may not like the ethnic connection may be important or it may not be important. So if it's not that important, then it may seem quite weird to some people because they think, well, how come this person doesn't dress like that or this woman doesn't dress in this particular way or she doesn't wear a head covering or she doesn't do this. or But yet their inner connection is so much more profound. Okay. And they are the Muslims who I would refer to as Muslims with a capital M. Because they are truly interested in a kind of message, which is what Islam actually was about. But by extension, Islam was about the other thing as well. I mean, it was about a sense of belonging. I'm not to deny that. But I think that's a secondary purpose. And hence it caught everyone. But the primary purpose is a difficult one. So... Somebody said, in his opinion, it was a dream. <laughs> now I've got to guess the question. <laughs> Chalo, that's the answer. In his opinion, it was a dream. Your Honor. <laughs> now, now I've got to guess the charges. <laughs> so what could, the, what could the potential questions or the charges be? For that answer, for that response. <laughs> well, if I'll have you know that there was actually a case in Canada where a person drove almost 20 miles and stabbed his mother-in-law to death whilst 
sleepwalking. All under the influence, all done whilst asleep. And with that, the defense rests its case on her. <laughs> so, well, I hope that. Mufti, could you please talk about collective consciousness or the concept of collective psyche? You did it briefly in in December and you said you'd come back to it as the Quran. Speak about it from your perspective. Oof, collective consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Ah, yeah, I'm so intrigued by these things, honestly. I'm so intrigued by them. Um... What are your opinions on Dan Brubaker? Dan Brubaker? Who's Dan Brubaker? And his recent book, Correction in Early Quran. I haven't come across that book. Abdurrahman Warsameh says, Mufti, translate into English the Urdu poems and proverbs. There's so many poems, so many. I, I, I have to say I love... Urdu poetry. I love poetry in general. Even Arabic poetry. Even Arabic poetry. Yeah? <laughs> Arabic poetry is awesome as well. But Urdu poetry does have a unique kind of uh, a twang to it. It has a certain taste. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you. Allow me to elucidate. I hope it doesn't play up today. The connection is kind of going back and forth. But classical concepts don't resonate so much with us. So they're all about, for example, traveling, uh, which is fine, but it doesn't, not everybody finds that so exciting today. Wars, which are fine, but they don't, you know, just Arabic, classical Arabic poetry, speaking about camels, <laughs> which we totally don't get today. <laughs> and whereas... Let's say the Urdu poetry is more the concept of love. I mean, the classical Arabs did speak of love as well. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying that it's as the day and age changes, the themes change. So that's why. And then you could get very recent poets, like I often quote, John Ilya Sahib. Hadrat John Ilya. A legend, legend people. A Gothic poet. Oof. You know, he pours his heart out and he says things which other poets wouldn't dare to say. Yes, salam. A poem of his, let me give you an example. He says in one, he says in one poem, that why should we be awkward in saying this? That why should I be awkward? That let me just say it. <laughs> Confidence. Huh? He says, why, why should we be awkward in expressing this? Whosoever is happy out there, I am envious of him. I <laughs> John Ilya. This that is, you know, it. Such brutal kind of raw transparency that it's overwhelming, yet human so human that you have to love it. 
It's amazing. It's amazing. It's it's pure genius, people. He has he has one line where he says, "Pehlu ki hasina hai." That means in my on my side, like what? Like he's speaking about a, a woman, a girl that he's got, and he says, and he's saying this to his to his love, that last love. He says, that I've got a cheap, <laughs> a cheap beauty, like a beautiful girl, but she's cheap. like, I've got a cheap beauty at my side. Teri furkat guzari jare. He says that, teri furkat guzari He says, that your separation, that's what I'm enduring. That's what I'm getting by, getting through. That these are the things I have to do to get over your separation. That's such, so raw, people. So transparent, so not trying to aspire to some kind of perfection. So... In some of these poets, if it was a dream, why is it clearly written that he denied it was a dream? When questioned by Aisha, he went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Oh, are we talking about the Isra wal Mi'raj? The number of prayers were dreamt up. Ya salam. Ya salam. <laughs> it was a vision. It was a vision. Whether the vision was in during a dream or not is irrelevant. Whether the vision was in a wakeful state, but it was a vision. There is a difference between a vision and a dream. So the prophet saw a vision, and in that vision he was traveling. And it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't say anywhere that Masjid al-Aqsa was Jerusalem. So I've said that in my last week's show, that it's nowhere does it mention that Masjid al-Aqsa is, Jerus is Jerusalem. Hence, the early Shia uh, split with the Sunnis on this matter. That Where does it say? They said, and some early people from the Salaf said that the Masjid al-Aqsa was a place outside of Mecca. That's where they said it was. Others said it was in the heavens. That's what's being meant by Masjid al-Aqsa. And then some people claimed, or oh, maybe Jerusalem, because it was the Jewish place. But why? You know, because it doesn't make much sense. Why is that the most farthest point? Why? Why is the, the holy site of the Jewish people the farthest point of Islam? Makes no sense. But I mean, people can, obviously, Muslims accepted it later on, it became Muslim culture. Not everything that becomes accepted by the, the Muslim, when I say accepted, I don't mean everybody accepted, but it became the norm to just kind of like, it's there. It doesn't mean it's actually accurate. Okay, so for example, uh, there being domes on masjids is a common accepted practice. It was never an accurate thing. It was never something authentic in Islam. In fact, 
if anything, one may argue against it from an authentic Islamic perspective. I mean, I've got no problem with domes on masjids, but I'm just saying that they're not from the sunnah of the Prophet, to have a dome on a mosque. Um, these things were never there in the time of the Prophet. So and these were influenced by other cultures. Yet today, it's, it's the norm. You identify a masjid by its dome today. So not everything that you see ubiquitous, that you see widespread, must be authentic. Okay, so just have... Replying to Robin, something about a bikini girl. I've got no idea what that... God needs another... Are shrines permissible? <laughs> What do you want to do to the shrines? <laughs> At least let the dead rest peacefully. <laughs> uh, they, they must be thinking, look, we're dead now and these people still are bothering us. Are shrines permissible? What does shrines mean? Shrines as in visiting shrines, making shrines, creating shrines, decorating shrines, worshipping at shrines, asking help, seeking help from the shrines. I mean, there's hundreds of questions I could make up here. I don't know. Sitting the shades of shrines. <laughs> Using the Wi-Fi in, at some of these shrines. <laughs> what What is the question? So, right, so, what evidence do Shia use to prove Imama from the Quran? Aiden Hash. Elizabeth is asking, we are talking about my question, if I can pray in shorts and t-shirt so long as home alone. Um, is it hypothetically, Abdullah asks, hypothetically possible to make polygamy haram through trajectory hermeneutics? Make polygamy haram? Traitor! We have a people, we have a kafir in our midst. <laughs> Some people can never see the happiness of others, can they? <laughs> you just can't bear to see other people happy in this life, huh? <laughs> Some people are just full of venom. <laughs> I asked Allah, don't let me see the face of a kafir today. <laughs> and I log on to Facebook and look at these questions. <laughs> uh, I'm joking, I'm joking. Right, so let's take some of those questions. <laughs> right, so let's take some of those questions. Uh, first one, praying in... <laughs> <laughs> praying in shorts praying in shorts and t-shirts <laughs> all right it's a party <laughs> right so and one pray in in casual or non-covered non-covered clothing <laughs> with an ex exposure of the aura can one Pray like that. So, right, okay. Now, there is a difference of opinion. 
with the majority of the people, uh, most people, okay, will feel that that is impossible. The Maliki Madhab, the school of Medina, the Don Madhab people, the Don Madhab, right, that has some, it, 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 it's, the Maliki Madhab says, so when, when you're looking at them, they'll say like Hanafi, no, Shafi, no, Hanbali, no. The Maliki will say, allow me to expand. <laughs> so you'd like to respond expansively on that. And there's a difference between the Badadi, the Iraqi Malikis, and some of the others. Uh, the Iraqi Maliki self, covering yourself, is an entirely separate obligation in Islam. It has nothing to do with the prayer. So he argues that, that the covering uh, is simply a recommendation within Salah. It is not a condition of prayer. So technically, he, he argues this point that if a person prayed naked, would the Salah still be valid? And he states that the Salah would be valid, although that's a separate question of whether just being naked or not uh, and where you are at that time. So I have said in the past as well that I find I do follow that ruling of the Iraqi Malikiya that covering yourself um, in Salah is a recommendation and it is an issue of propriety people propriety proprietorial it is to do with the, the kind of suitability of where you are okay so for example you're not going to just turn up in a masjid turn up to a masjid sorry just in your boxer shorts <laughs> i hope not <laughs> otherwise you can't trust the Kari Sahib, you know, there might be a problem, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, the Kari Sahib might say, Acha, acha, acha. Bete, zara. Can you help me with this thing in the storeroom? <laughs> so I wouldn't advise, under any circumstances, turning up to a masjid in just your kind of... Uh, in. So there's propriety issues, like how do you behave in certain places? What are the etiquettes? of certain circumstances and situations. So we call that propriety. So there is, yes, there, there is that. So, but if a person, as far as just the Salah is concerned, then I do follow that understanding that there's nothing in Islam to uh, mandate the covering. I accept that some people have argued to the contrary that, you know, that, um, Ya Bani Adam, takum inda kulli masjid, as the verse of the Quran says, that take your adornment, O oh, children of Adam, adorn, take your adornment at every point of prostration or at every masjid, meaning at every prayer. Uh, that's how many people have understood this. So I'm not saying do that. I'm not saying to people that start praying in your underwear or things like this, but I'm tackling the question that if somebody prayed like that, is the prayer valid? And yes, I would argue in line with the Iraqi school of Medina, the Malikiya, that yes, the prayer is valid. I hope that helps. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
Elizabeth saying, well, you know, it's, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Why did Umar prohibit mut'ah? Yes, yeah, so I have answered uh, the other questions uh, in this question as well in much more detail. If you check my clip on the girl in, the, in her bikini praying salah that went viral, <laughs> you know, those kind of clips are definitely going to go viral. <laughs> One, it's a controversy. Two, it's a girl in a bikini. Now, those are reasons why clips go viral. <laughs> You're not going to get a normal clip where a guy says, hey, people, I'm going to share some wisdom with you going viral. <laughs> who needs wisdom in life? <laughs> who needs wisdom? That's like, who the hell needs that? <laughs> but clips about girls in bikinis now that everybody's going to pay attention to so that clip had gone viral and uh, so people had really kind of uh was slut shaming this girl and thing i don't know who she was but she's praying at the uh, poolside and so i responded and my clip is on youtube and it's in much more detail so you can watch it there um what does trajectory uh, hermeneutics mean in an ijtihadi sense that's a good question would you do a talk with uh vidu vids uh of course of course with vidu vids vidu vids is a, is a great guy man inshallah uh i am looking to inshallah life all goes well this week uh do a talk with uh uh haris sultan now so that will most likely be on Thursday night, if it's going ahead, that is. <clears throat> right, so that's the, um, that's that. What other question was there? What are the, I said that there were a few questions. I said I'll tackle them. Right, YouTube people, I've, all the, any questions, post them on Facebook. It's just so much more easier for me to tackle. Have you ever been Gamkul Sharif? Of course I've been to Gamkul Sharif. Gamkul Sharif is one of the most, uh, one of the major masjids. In fact, perhaps arguably the largest masjid in Birmingham. So, and that's where I live in, in the city of Birmingham. So, um, definitely I've been on so many occasions. It's also known as uh, Pir uh, Abdullah Sahib's Masjid, or, uh, but it's named Gamkul Sharif or Gamkul Via, but it's a great masjid. Um, please do more refutations. <laughs> I don't know about refutations, but I'd, uh, I will be giving my analysis on uh, uh, Muhammad Hijab's lecture. I watched his lecture on... Um, I forgot what it's liberalism. <laughs> I almost forgot what his lecture was about there and on liberalism. And I'll be sharing my thoughts on that in just a moment, in a moment to come, in a moment to come, people. And I'll also be discussing, uh, there'll be a little Mufti Masala segment. We'll discuss that. What's going on with uh, uh, what's... Um, Umma Abdullah case has, has had some new developments and Hassanat. Uh, and there's a, a, a there's a clip going that's also I've seen of uh, a da'i, a preacher by the name of Abu Taymiyyah. And I've been asked to comment on the ruling that he's discussed. I'll discuss 
that as well. So, what else is going on? When is someone considered Majnoon? Lucy is asking a question. Right, right, Majnoon. Majnoon means mental in Arabic, so, or <laughs> clinically insane, I guess. Well, that's a uh, mental health issue, and you can re refer to the professionals. Somebody said there's a controversy with Sheikh Atabek. Are you aware of this? I'm not aware of any controversy with Sheikh Atabek. Sheikh Atabek is a good guy. You know, he's a good guy. He's a great Sheikh. He, you know, his heart's in the absolute right place and his mind as well and his efforts. Um, great person. I mean, I... Maybe doing an event with him next month. I don't know. Uh, we'll we'll see. We'll see. Inshallah, how that kind of unfolds. Cool. Uh, Abdul Majid is in the house, people. Our IT technician is in the house. Does a mutawad hadith overrule the practice of the people of Medina? Anthony, question: Mutawatir hadith. Is there such thing as a mutawatir hadith? That is the question. That is the question. You've got the question wrong. <laughs> You've got the answer right, but the question wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> what's that? There was a friend of mine, his neighbor used to say. <laughs> when people would knock on his door and it would be wrong, like a wrong number, he'd say, <laughs> right number, wrong door, number next door. <laughs> right number, wrong door, number next door. So, that, so like that, there was <laughs> this, uh, uh, this. Is there such thing as a mutawatir hadith? Or is this from the balagat of certain people to legitimize certain things? Because I would say that by the definition of the muhaddithin, it's possible to bring a mutawatir hadith. By their definition of something being truly mass transmitted. So the definition they give is, let's say the Prophet said something, at least five, some people say 10, 12, 40 people heard from him. And from each one, a similar number heard. So there's exponential growth by that route. So if you take five, let's say the first chain, the prophet, you have five people, then the next layer has 25, and then each one of those has five. There's no such thing. <laughs> they couldn't. <laughs> There's no such hadith ever like that. If you could meet one scholar, who would it be and why? <laughs> yeah, there's so many scholars I'd love to meet. There's so many I'd love to meet. I'd, you know, it's not just meet. There's people I'd love to get to know. There's a difference. It's a difference in becoming acquainted with and just meeting. I'd love to be acquainted with scholars like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf to get to know him. Um. Allama uh, Javed Ramidisa, I'd love to get to know him. 
um, all these kind of Adnan Ibrahim, Sheikh Adnan Ibrahim. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of scholars that I would love to get to know. There's a difference between getting to know someone and just meeting someone. Meeting, you know, you shake hands, you say, mashallah, it's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> and then you're on your merry way. You know, this I see very little to gain from, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'd still love to meet. I have met Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, but I, I mean, I'd love to meet these people, but just meeting, meet and greet, it has very little to offer. So that's, what about the line, what about, how about Yusuf Estes? I have met Yusuf Estes, I have met him. Bilal Phillips, have I met Bilal Phillips? I haven't met Bilal Phillips, of course. I'd, I mean, I'd like to, I'm a social person. I'm a social outgoing person. I'd love to meet anyone, everyone. Of course, and all of my especially. I have met Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Somebody said, I'm surprised you haven't met him. I have met him. But, it, we, you know, apart from exchanging a few words, as in, how are you doing, Sheikh? It's a pleasure to meet. You know, there wasn't, there's not, I haven't really, I, I don't know him. I haven't become acquainted with him, as in, I haven't got to, you know, actually have deep discussions and get to know him. I would love to, but ah, oh, well, is blowing here fade, fadey, fadey or shady? Is blowing on the nuts in sort like putting a curse on someone? <laughs> yes, it is. This one, this this one, almost naughty, naughty. But yes, it is. Yes. Opinions on Imran Khan in America. Imran Khan in America. Who's Imran Khan? Are we talking about the president, the prime minister of Pakistan, or uh, Swami Raza? If God is merciful, then why does He allow animals to brutally tear apart other animals? Oh, the tragedy. The brutality of nature. It has a brutal realism to it that is all part and parcel of growth and life. It is intricately bound with life. That In the words of Ghalib, That being trapped within problems, within gham. Gham is an amazing word in Urdu. Gham can mean like sorrows. It can mean... Uh, I suppose, but in Urdu, it's been kind of owned and glamorized, which is interesting because it makes it then difficult to translate because sorrows in English are only negative. Nobody wants to own sorrows. Nobody wants to own that dark side of life. But in Urdu poetry, the poets kind of want, like they embrace them. 
so it's difficult sometimes translating that. I struggle to translate the into, I don't know if there's a, but Ghalib says that being trapped with problems and being bound by life are in essence one. Dono asal ek, that they are just one. That why should it be that before death, man is emancipated or freed from sorrows? How could it be when they both won? That to become free from one, you must become free from life. It's a deep concept in that. But um, it is the, um, these things are, um, they are part and parcel of nature for growth, for survival of the fittest, for life to evolve. There must be struggle. It's, it's a brutal realism, but one that is necessary for the arrival of humans. You know, for us to arrive at the cognitive revolution, there must have been this struggle in nature. I suppose one could argue that, you know, God could have just done everything. He could have just put us in. But then would we really have that free will? That's the question. Melancholy is embraced in English. Yeah, rash. You're right, actually. You're right. Uh, melancholy. Yeah. So I suppose that kind of. Yeah, that's right. But I suppose melancholy isn't so used by people today. I mean, it is used, but I'm just saying it's not a common kind of term. Um but I agree with you. It's it's like in the poem of Fez, Ahmed Fez, where he says, Tera gham mil jai, to ka jagra kya hai. That all I want is your melancholy or your gham, your kind of sorrow. That's all I want to be. I want to embrace it. And if I get that, then who cares about the sorrows of the... But he doesn't mean it here as in who cares about the sorrows of the world. He means that who cares in chasing the sorrows of the world, which is strange in English. That what is the, the point of, of, you know, of, all, of all of this? That that what is there in this world besides the, besides those beautiful eyes? That what is there really that counts? That's what he says. People, you need to learn poetry. You need to learn poetry. That when something is transmitted massively from so many people, it becomes impossible that all the narrators have have met to invent a lie that is true that is the uh, the understanding of mass transmission you see this people is a you know when people speak about mutawatir something is mutawatir what they are this topic this discussion is a discussion of epistemology okay <laughs> Epistemology, people. Epistemological 
issues. <laughs> he thought Mufti doesn't know these things. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, so epistemology, you might ask, what is epistemology? <laughs> Some of you might think, does Mufti just say these things to, to try and look intelligent? <laughs> <laughs> We've got to do these things. Otherwise, people don't people don't believe that I that I can actually that I actually read. <laughs> if I don't force feed you these words, I don't have no value. <laughs> ah, I'm messing, I'm messing. Epistemology basically is the study of how we know things. So how do I know this glass? Right here, this pint glass with my special cocktail in there. Allah, Allah. I could tell you what it is, but no, not in that. Allah. So this, <laughs> this, how do I know this is there? Because I see it, because of sensation, because of perception, because of intuition, because of learning things. All the way all the possible methods by which one can know something, the study of that is called epistemology. Okay. Now, when we are discussing Tawatur, the point is, it is really an issue of epistemology. That somebody is saying that, look, the prophet said this, and the other person is asking, but how do you truly know 100% that he said it? So people have come up with a concept of this is the issue. But when you're discussing hadith, is there such thing as mutawatir? Now you tell me, just be honest. How many people must it take for something for you to not even entertain 1% doubt? That's a personal question. But it's a very relevant and real question. That if I said to you that, oh, I heard some news. I heard something has happened. How many people must tell you that? What must the avenues be? Even you can't verify. You can't actually. Like imagine somebody said, oh, Donald Trump had an accident. Donald Trump's had a severe accident, let's say. And, you know, he's in critical. How many people must tell you that for that or must be talking about that for it without it be enough? <laughs> Worldwide, three people. <laughs> You're having a laugh, mate. <laughs> three people. So would five people even be enough? So exactly, so you tell me this issue of epistemology for us to believe with certainty that there isn't even a 1% doubt that the Prophet said this. Is there ever such a hadith? Is there ever? And the answer is no, there isn't. And this isn't something I'm saying. 
many scholars before me, great scholars of hadith, Ibn Hibban denied this, Al-Hazmi denied this. They said, look, they said it as it was. But later on, you've got to understand the enterprise of the scholars involved. This is why people, I always advise you that when you're studying, um, you know, if you're serious about religion and things like this, it's always good to, and you can use this in any aspect of life. You don't have to reserve this for religion, but always assess the power at play, the power dynamics. You see, human beings are complex creatures. We're not just, when people say things, they don't just say things. There's huge power issues, power dynamics at play. There's, there's things like status, positions of power, there's, there's trying this subconscious things taking place. There's so much. I mean, I don't know those of you that have ever looked into, and I'm not saying this has to be 100% accurate, but there's something there. There's a sub-science sub within psychology, sometimes referred to as gameology. Okay, and this isn't, this is the study of games, but not like video games and things like that. But it's a study of kind of mental games that people play. And you'll see uh, things like, um, uh, and it's at the forefront, people like Rick Byrne, who's got a book called Games, Games That People Play. And you can buy the book and it may be, some of it may be slightly outdated now because it was written decades ago. Uh, and maybe people don't behave in those exact same ways today, but still, it's interesting. And let me give you an example. What he's talking about is subconsciously the kind of, and sometimes consciously and subconscious, the games of interaction that people are playing. So as an example, back then, a few decades ago, when women weren't as thriving in in the workplace as they are today, let's say. Um, so they didn't have maybe as many, they did have opportunities a few decades ago as well, but I'm just saying today it's probably, uh, there's, there's, you know, it's a lot, I, I would say reasonably equal, but people may challenge that. But my point is he gives the scenario of, uh, this is one game of a woman who is, too daunted, too intimidated to pursue her ambitions. She's too daunted. She, that, that thought scares her. The thought of failure, like of going out there and let's say she wants to become, let's say she wants to become a writer or she wants to become something, but she's too frightened of failing. So what she does is she marries a husband a guy that is very controlling. This husband doesn't allow her to pursue an academic uh, pursuit, like doesn't allow her to go to university. He's very controlling. Now, she then justifies her inability to become a, let's say, a writer or a, I don't know, a nurse or whatever it is, on her husband says well you know i'd love to have been this but my husband you know 
he, he, he's too controlling and too possessive and doesn't let me. Uh, and this is why you can understand why I said the book may be slightly outdated, but the games are still real. Now, she may blame him for withholding her ambition, but really she chose a person like that, that was very controlling on purpose to kind of fulfill that game. And what I'm trying to, what, and what Eric Byrne and other psychologists are trying to show here is that human beings are very complex. And there's a lot of games that go on between people. And I know the term games makes it sound jovial, but they're not actually always jovial or necessarily fun. They're just the, the kind of interactions that are taking place. Um, KM said most Muslim men are controlling. Uh, right. So, <laughs> they may be. Unfortunately, I, 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 I actually may agree with you. I think that unfortunately many Muslim men are still very insecure. And that's a shame, actually. It's a tragedy. But getting back to this point, you see, when you're studying the a discussion within Islam, and you're looking at a hadith, mutawatir, being mutawatir. This concept is posited by who? The muhaddithin who are invested in this enterprise. They have a stake in this enterprise. Without hadith, there is no them. They derive power from this enterprise. I'm not, obviously, I, I agree with hadith. I'm not somebody that... <laughs> derides hadith or you know is against hadith these books behind you behind me that you can see are mainly especially this whole section is all hadith and i've studied hadith but i'm trying to say let's also be real when we're analyzing these things that there is a huge element of power at stake and people don't like it when they're being questioned like scholars when they have rulings they don't like being theologians they don't like being questioned, their power. So they come up with these theories that, oh, this is mutawatir. And you think, well, is it? And they think, well, now that I've said it's mutawatir, you can't even question it. And you think, well, why can't I question it? No, you can't question it. It's mutawatir. It's mass transmitted. And you're like, well, uh, but it isn't. And you're like, no, uh, it is. To deny mutawatir is to deny that which is known by necessity. And to deny that which is known by necessity makes you a kafir. <laughs> so you think, well, hmm, uh, you know, slightly more than I bargained for. I just had a question on hadith, but I've, <laughs> you know, I set off with a question of hadith and it looks like I've walked off Islam. <laughs> <laughs> right so i think i'll just kind of hold my horses and just let this be but these tools and and you'll see the scholars do the same thing with the concept of ijma consensus a very kind of bogeyman concept that they've come up with um they yield you know around everywhere to to just hurl you know a kind of it's it's an intimidation tactic that's all but yeah, do you have a problem with me having a conversation with someone? Uh, can you not have your private conversations 
on my life, please. <laughs> this is this is about me, 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 me. <laughs> you you're impacting my nerves. <laughs> right. Is istighatha upon the Prophet Shirk? Right, look, there's two things here that need to be separated. One is, what do we mean by shirk? Are we trying to chuck somebody out of Islam? I'm not in that game of trying to chuck people out of Islam. And I don't believe Islam is in that game <laughs> of trying to chuck people out. Um, so people doing whatever they're doing, I don't believe in trying to scare people away from Islam. I don't believe in trying to uh, uh, tell people you're no longer Muslim and things like this. Okay, so that's not... That doesn't interest me, okay? No me importa, okay? It does not bother me or concern me, okay? However, if we're going to be analytical and just look at this concept of praying to the Prophet, then in all honesty, is this not just a return to the gods of old? Uh, and by gods, I mean with a small g, not a capital G. Right, so human beings have long struggled with the concept of one supreme transcendent deity, as did the Arabs of Hejaz. They, they struggled with that because that transcendent God is too distant. He's not interested in us. Why should I, you know, what does that God want with us? You understand? Just like, as I, I gave the example, as in Hinduism, uh, Brahman. Brahman is the almighty, the great ultimate. But Brahman, also referred to as Bhagwan, but Bhagwan can also refer to other deities as well, is so transcendent that Brahman doesn't care. You can't connect with Brahman. So you connect with lesser deities who can connect you with the ultimate deity now this was the problem that the arabs of hijaz had and the prophet's journey of prophethood with them was trying to bridge the gap between the impersonal and the personal god and he did and people did embrace the message of Islam and I feel that's such a difficult mission for all humans to just bridge that gap it, it's we would it's a it, it'll take a lifetime and we will still struggle so and and this is just a fine example and you'll see well people if they won't resort to gods and and deities and demigods and statues then they'll just resort to saints you know, it's the same, you know, it's, you know, you can call it whatever you like. Heal jizya samuha mashetum. You know, there's a, a saying uh, of Sayyidina Umar radiallahu an, where he had a treaty with some of the Byzantines. And, and what had happened was... Uh, they uh, used to give a certain amount of tax and there was it was part of the peace treaty 
And kingdoms have always done that. There's nothing new about that. Just as today, people pay. Um, they pay for certain things. They pay to be part of certain, you know, to be part of the EU, for example. We, we have to contribute. this, things like this or to pay certain kinds of um, things, especially in previous times, was very common. So they, the Byzantines, they were paying jizya to Umar. Now, uh, some of the, I don't mean the great, but a particular kind of kingdom, because you've got to remember there was the Ghassanid kingdoms and, and part of, and this term jizya was a term used by many people before Islam. This is not an Islamic term. Jizya was something that was used by people like the Nabataeans, it was used by people like the Ghassanids, by the Lakhmids, by people, kingdoms prior to Islam used this term of jizya. Okay, and it's actually in their texts, and some have argued it goes right back to the Hebrew with, with the term, uh, what is it, Giz, uh, Gazit, is Jizya. Nevertheless, anyway, so one of these kings, he said that, look, Jizya is an embarrassing term. So he, he stopped paying the Jizya, and uh, Umar, uh, radiallahu an wrote to him that, look, you know, to, to do that is to break the treaty and it's a, a declaration of war. So he said, he said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. <laughs> this one misunderstanding. He said, look, this is an embarrassment for me to pay the jizya. I'm happy to pay you, but I just won't pay you the jizya. What I will pay you is called a hadiyah. It's a gift. So every year, I will pay you the, the sum, but this will come as a hadiyah, not as not as a jizya. So, <laughs> so he wrote back saying, I've got no problem in fulfilling the treaty. We'll pay, but we're not going to call it jizya. We're going to call it hadiyah. So Sayyidina Umar, radiallahu an, he, when he received the letter, <laughs> his reply was, Hiyal jizya sammuha ma shittum. You know, it is what it is. Call it whatever you want. <laughs> so like, <laughs> no me importa, people. It does not bother me. It does not bother me. So, what is going on? From what I have learned, it is indeed in the Quran. No idea what you're talking about. No idea what you're talking about. Right, so... Uh, what do you think about doing acting as a career, as as in me doing acting as a career? Sure, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> too much flattery, you know. <laughs> I know, I know. You're not asking about me, <laughs> right? What do I think about? The, yep, it's permissible. You can do acting. It's fine. And I don't believe, you know this, by the way, there's this question. Um, there was this question about if you're getting married on, on, on set, like let's say in a scene, in a movie, does that, and you say, you know, have you accepted? I do, I do, like, kabiltu, kabiltu. Now, some of the fuqaha said, <laughs> you know, the scholars as well. It's like they've got nothing better to do sometimes. He said, Astaghfirullah, that the nikah has happened. You are now actually his wife because the ijab, the kabul took place 
and they were witnesses. So it's too late. <laughs> so no, I don't believe these kind of things to be literal. Salman Shah says, are kissing scenes permissible? <laughs> Salman Shah, you're watching the kissing scenes? <laughs> the haram, the haram scenes. Astaghfirullah, astaghfirullah. <laughs> you know, it's like as a kid <laughs> when something's on the TV and it'll turn to a, <laughs> a kissing scene, and you're like. Where's the remote? Where's the, where's the remote? Where's the remote? <laughs> and your dad will give you a slap. <laughs> like it's my fault that they're kissing. <laughs> and we're like, why, why is this my fault? <laughs> I mean, I'm not the director of the damn movie. It's like, oh, God, huh? Yes, Salam. The wonders of this world. <laughs> That's what it's like growing up in a, in, in a typical kind of Muslim, especially a Desi kind of uh, household. And usually what happens, you know, from the nature, the way it works is at that moment, for some reason, the, the remote control will just stall <laughs> and it'll just get stuck on that scene. And you'll be like, <laughs> and that'll be like the only scene in the entire movie. <laughs> and that's the scene that your parents are going to walk in on. Like, what were the odds of that? Like, if you were to place a bet, like, what are the odds that here's a movie for just under two hours and there's only one scene in there for a few seconds and your parents are going to walk in any time during what are the chances that they will walk in on that precise moment lo and behold <laughs> it'll defy the odds i'm telling you <laughs> so you'll just hear huh ramya <laughs> Uh, anyway, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's focus. Let's, <laughs> let's come back for, th for that. I need therapy. I need counseling, but let's come back to <laughs> zone back into where we're meant to be. Right. So, <sighs> right. So what are some of the questions, people? What are some of the questions? What's going on? So I'll take some of the questions from here. Is molid permissible? Yeah, yeah, molid. Is molid permissible? If you want to do it, do it. Who cares? Why is this even a big deal? Why is this a big deal? You know, we're still stuck on is molid permissible? <laughs> I mean, for God's sake, Money Heist Season 3 is out and we're still stuck on is molid permissible? Is this... <laughs> <laughs> you need to move with the day and age, people. Move, move on, move on. 
So what else is going on? Is Molid permissible? Do you do it? I don't I don't celebrate a celebration per se or do anything like that. I don't have any objection to people doing it. I've, you know, attended Molids in the past when I've been invited, but I've, I don't kind of go out of my way to do anything. Um, somebody's trying to ruin a TV series for me. Staghfirullah. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. Toba, toba, toba. There's a special pit reserved in the pits of hell for such people. Balagani. <laughs> it's reached me that there's a special pit for those people who do spoiler alerts. That's toba, toba, toba. Right, so... All right, what else is going on, people? What else? Let's take a look at some of these questions. Well, I'm trying to... Lahda, lahda, lahda. Whoa, 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 whoa. Ah. Right. These are the same questions I'm getting every single week. Was this last week's? No, no. Hmm? <laughs> right. I should have like a. See, this is the heat. I should have like a wardrobe crew. <laughs> just come in and they just kind of like brush up everything's ready all right go take <laughs> soon 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 almost there almost there right so <sighs> right so what am i km is asking do we literally sit up in our graves no, 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 no. I don't. I don't think you literally do these kind. Of, I think this kind of language is simply a the religious rubric that is used to kind of bring people's attention to doing certain things. Sorry, I'm just trying to just realize the the non Euclidean geometry going on. <laughs> uh, is Mexican music permissible? Mexicano, of course, of course, of course. Vive el Mexico. That's the why not, people? Why not? Music is not haram. Music is arguably it is the nourishment of the soul. Okay, and you can see the reality to that. It's amazing what certain sound waves can do and i feel in some ways that it's amazing that um if if things like string theory be true if it hasn't been it's it's, it's it can't be tested yet but if string theory be true then the essence of everything is simply vibrations it's amazing that these vibrations, you see, because 
sound doesn't actually exist, people. Sound is an interaction. There's no such thing as sound. It doesn't have a, a physical kind of reality to it. Sound is the interaction between waves, airwaves, sound waves, which are simply just waves in the air, and an organism that interprets those waves. So that, that kind of also solves the aged old question that if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's there to observe it, does it make a sound? No, it doesn't make a sound because a sound doesn't actually have a reality to it. There is no actual thing as sound in that sense. It's airwaves being measured by an organism, being not just measured, sorry, interpreted and received by an organism. So, and, and the fact that music can actually heal people and many Muslims during the medieval times, they had in the hospitals, maristans they used to call them, um, they had music therapy as a healing uh, kind of mechanism. And people that are sometimes, um, you know, suffering from certain neuronal degenerative uh, illnesses, you can find that music helps them. It actually helps the brain. How could this be haram? How could that be haram? It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, right, so right, so I think that's an important... Pulwa Tuma says, I thought you were Dominican. <laughs> que lo que, que lo que, que lo que, right, when I first saw you. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, well, I do want to visit uh, that part of... That, that whole continent, inshallah, some point in the future, I need to improve and then then go on an exploration. <laughs> Become my own kind of... Uh, 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 what's the... Some, look at these, some comments coming up, right? People, let's, uh, we get distracted, we get distracted. Let's focus, let's, let's cover uh, Muhammad Hijab's talk on liberalism. Because I think this is quite important. A few people did send it to me. It's a recent talk uh, done by Muhammad Hijab in, I'm not exactly sure where it is. I think it's the Netherlands. And so it's, it's on YouTube. And Muhammad Hijab, it's at a university. He's giving a thorough discussion. A it's not a dialogue, really, but a, a thorough kind of lecture, if you like, a detailed or apparently or allegedly detailed lecture on liberalism, uh, what it means, an Islamic viewpoint, how it's wrong, how it's baseless, how um, they don't have any valid arguments to argue from that they don't have a valid standpoint uh, this is this is the, the kind of claim being made by uh, Muhammad Hijab so I did I watched the lecture just to see well what is this about now I'd like to clarify a few things like what I what I thought about this lecture 
I think that this, I did read, especially in the comments, that it, it seemed to be very well received. Um, it was in a university setting, but the assumption, the impression I got is that it was to a Muslim audience. Okay, because it seems to be very kind of playing to that Muslim kind of sentiment. Um, so I'm not sure if there, if it was a uh, a heavily mixed crowd or not, but it doesn't seem like that from by the way the talk is delivered. Okay, so Muhammad Hijab begins by defining liberalism. What is liberalism? Now, just to I, I want to make a few pointers and then go into some of the discussions that he had just to kind of give an overview. First of all, I feel that either Muhammad Hijab doesn't, either he hasn't understood the whole, he hasn't fully holistically grasped the concept, which I'm not so sure because he is an intelligent person. Muhammad Hijab is very intelligent. Uh, you know, he's not somebody stupid or somebody um naive so i'm not sure if that stands true or is he deliberately kind of going down a particular particular route of of argument just to kind of win his case and get points i don't know or is it that he's I don't know. He's being he's being told to say things in a particular way. I don't know what the reasoning is. I mean, he knows Allahu alam, but I think it it was a very poor job. Uh, it was um, it was done very poorly in my perspective. Um, his kind of breakdown of liberalism, because what he was doing is he was arguing against liberalism the way Muslims have sectarian debates so this was his point like like let's say you are about to argue with the shia for example argues the wrong word let's say you're about to have a debate with the shia or with the sufi or with the hanafi or with the maliki or with the wahhabi or with a, a religious this is how muslims within religion debate what they do is they find out what that person adheres to then they will use the figures so let's say now i'm going to debate against a hanafi so what i'll do is i'll find out okay what do the great hanafi scholars scholars have to say about a particular whatever the issue is and then i'm going to say to them ah but look look you're saying this but Imam Abu Hanifa himself used to do Rafal Yadain, for example. Or I'm going to say, ah, you're saying this, but you know, Ibn Taymiyyah, he used to go and visit Sufi graves. So how can you be against Sufi? So what we do is we argue <coughs> from a point of compelling leadership compelling authority so we assume that that figurehead is an absolute authority for this person so we're going to say well you know you you claim to be maliki so ah so imam malik said this ha ah, now you're stuck <laughs> you're stuck now because i've quoted your imam 
this is the kind of polemics that happen within, unfortunately, but within religion, within Islam especially. That is how all of these Muslimic, <laughs> Islamic debates take place. So if you're going to argue with the Shia, oh, here is a Shia book. Your Imam said this, this particular Imam, Ayatollah said this, now you're stuck. I've got you. So even if that person says, yeah, but I don't really follow. No, no, no. What do you mean you don't follow? The Imam has said it. It's in the Kafi, if it's against the Shia. Or it's, you know, it's in the Mudawwana by Imam Malik. Or it's in Raddul Muhtar by the Hanafi. So what we do is we argue from an angle of compelling authority, compelling leadership. <coughs> so Muhammad Hijab was using this tactic, okay, against liberalism <laughs> right now that doesn't make any sense because outside of religion people don't see the world like that okay so you have to understand that people don't they don't feel that they're compelled to some kind of allegiance this is to begin with so what muhammad hijab did in this lecture is he began a thorough part of this lecture a, a huge part of this was dedicated to, to the figureheads of historical liberalism. So what does liberalism mean? Although Muhammad Hijab didn't really, I mean, he, he, he does touch up on it, to be fair. But uh, just, just to explain, liberalism is simply a stance against authoritarianism. That's all it is. In essence, so it is a trend, if you want to say trend, it is a, uh, a feeling, a sentiment that you do not like others being authoritarian. It is the resistance, okay? That is what liberalism uh, in essence is, in essence. Now, what Muhammad Hijab did is he focused on people like John Locke, uh, who's had a, a historical figure who's had a huge um, hundreds of, of you know from the into the 18th century where he's argued about liberalism in his day and age that why you should have what does it mean to have rights the rights of properties a fundamental uh, a fundamental intrinsic human right that we have this should be preserved and so John Locke has obviously made invaluable contributions not saying he hasn't, but yeah, so uh, Muhammad Hijab spent a, a considerable amount of time explaining this. That look, John Locke, but what did John Locke base this upon? John Locke himself was a Christian. So he based it upon what he believed was God empowered these rights. What did uh, Thomas Hobbes base his theories on? On the, that he was a Christian. What did... So he spends a considerable amount of time speaking about philosophers from a few hundred years ago who in essence were Christian, most of them, some weren't, but most were. And then he argues that they enshrined this ability to have rights in religion, which they may have. I mean, I'm not arguing against that. I'm not saying that's not true. He then spent a considerable amount of time saying that the human rights charter that has been drawn up by the united nations 
which is called Human Rights, um, is a this is a kind of modern term, which he says, look, if you search the Internet and he brings up some charts, it didn't exist be before the 1940s. I mean, there's very little mention of human rights. People refer to these things as naturalistic rights and human rights. You know, they, it's only been since the UN. And this is fundamentally a continuation of John Locke and Hobbes and Rousseau and all these people uh, from the 17th century and the 18th century who were Christians. Uh, so today, and this is, and this following Locke and Rousseau and Thomas Hobbes and all these people, or you are just a hypocrite and you cannot actually claim to be a, a liberal. <laughs> I mean, this is absurd. That is the, the, the worst kind of reasoning that I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen it being used in religion. But that is ridiculous and preposterous. And to use that kind of reasoning when debating matters of uh, trends of politics and life and viewpoints against authority, to use these kind of things, it, it, it makes no sense that, oh, just because I believe in the, that there shouldn't be authoritarianism and this view was also echoed by John Locke. I must now be a Christian because John Locke said it. Duh. I mean, but that's ridiculous. So this, so that's one very important fallacy that needs to be highlighted. And, and unfortunately, you'll see these kind people like Muhammad Hijab and other people resort to this quite often when speaking about non-Muslims. They will, they will use religious debate tactics which the world doesn't abide by i mean it makes no sense in the real world these sectarian uh debate sectarian rules of polemics sectarian rules of debate that are but you you're speaking for liberalism john locke spoke for liberalism kant spoke for liberalism so you must by necessity either uphold all of Kantian philosophy or you have no claim to liberalism. Uh, I don't think so, mate. I claim whatever the hell I want. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Like, why do I need to abide by whatever Kantian philosophy? I mean, I'm not saying it's so problematic, but what, why do I, why am I even bound by that? It, this may, you see, so this is one fallacy that needed to be uh, pointed out, right? So the the other thing is that so during the uh, during the lecture, um, dur during the lecture, Muhammad Hijab makes reference to many people. They will say today. Things like, oh, if you claim to be a liberal, uh, so he says that, look, many people will say today that, look, oh, OK, but I still have concerns. What's wrong with homosexuality? What's wrong with these things? You know, why don't we, um, you know, people ain't causing harm. They're not doing anything. And he says, well, you know, we say to these people, these are unnaturalistic and so on. 
I just want to make a. I'd like to make a point here. You see, I don't. <laughs> I don't like really making these points time and time again. Reason being, one, I've got a detailed clip explaining this, but two, I feel that it just wrongly <laughs> kind of pigeonholes a person because. But just to clarify the point, I feel that we as Muslims should really leave the LGBTQ people alone, okay? Stop making this about you. This isn't, look, let them be, right? Their sexuality, their lives, just let it be. This is not a fight that you're going to win, okay? Now, I'm just being very real. And in your failure, you will drag down the religion. And that's something you have no right to do. So my point isn't your standpoint, okay? My point is that you will, in this obstinate kind of or stubborn form of resistance, let's say, you will deface Islam. Because this is not a fight that you're going to win. Let's just be honest. This... The, the civil rights movement today, in this, in our day, right now, is centered on the LGBTQ community. So, and they've won the cultural war. So just let people be. Look, whatever it is, it's their right, it's their people. You know, whoever wants to do whatever they want to do, stop forcing religion in there. Because unfortunately it's just it's making a fight out of something that didn't need to be like that okay so that's my that's that's a, a kind of word of advice that i um would like to give people i don't people may not listen to me and that's fine but i would say look just let people be so he gave this example saying, look, we explain to people that uh, homosexuality is unnatural. Another thing we need to stop saying is that, in my understanding, that it's unnatural. Because that isn't actually accurate. That is not an accurate description of homosexuality. If we're going to be, if we want to be precise and accurate. Because if you're saying it's unnatural, that means it's not found in nature. Now, the truth is, by and large, most species of creatures are bisexual. Most species. So it's actually heavily found in nature. Um, contrary to Muhammad Hijab's argument of incest. So if you see the studies presented that many species do like to mate with, uh, with the opposite sex that is of a close genetic resemblance so the genetic gsa genetic sexual attraction theory shows that for example mice or other things when they found uh, certain um, let's say mice that shared strong resemblance a strong kind of smell and things like that to their own family they have wanted to mate with them so, so they've got loads of studies. I mean, you can Google them. Um, and there's, uh, in fact, uh, Diamond Jared brings it also in his uh, The Third Chimp. 
he brings a set of studies there as well in his book. It's a, it's a great book, by the way, if you haven't been through it. Now, but you will see that when the mice or these other, uh, these other subjects, whenever they were uh, presented in these, in these observations with their actual siblings, so a mouse was presented with his actual sister, as opposed to somebody related to him, even when he'd never met, I'm using the term here, sister, in that sense, even when he'd never met that sibling before ever, he would not mate with the actual sibling, but he would choose a mate that resembles her over other mates that don't resemble her. So the genetic sexual attraction theory is there, but the, the Westermark effect or the other effects that people, or not, sorry, this wasn't just people, creatures do not choose their actual siblings to mate with. So this incest rule is not found in nature. I'm not saying it's never found, and hence it's found in humans as well, but it's not it's not generally found. So if you were to use the term, it's not natural, that's fine. It's not commonly or not generally found in nature. It may be found as a kind of odd occurrence and that's fine. So this was another point that, um, um, that Muhammad Hijab had kind of made, uh, heavily relying on this. The other thing I'd like to clarify is you see, there is an over-reliance on removing agency from people in kind of assuming that human beings don't think of things for themselves. So Muhammad Hijab kept referring throughout this lecture to people that, look, when you say this, your rules, your laws are based in religion. Without that, you wouldn't have had a morality. And it is true that, look, most laws throughout the world are archaically or classically based on some kind of religion that is true like so um let's say within the uk these laws common laws and the well, the common laws were based on a judeo-christian kind of heritage unquestionably as it was throughout europe and other places and but human beings do not need let's just be honest because he touched upon a discussion of saying that there would be no morality otherwise. If you didn't have that, you'd have nothing. Because he's saying that you're basing it on these people who were anchored in religion. That's why they came up with it. But the truth is, human beings would know that to kill is wrong. Uh, they wouldn't need, in all honesty, they wouldn't need to be told that by scripture as the only method of discerning that it's wrong. How do we know that? Well, we know that through nature. Primates have a sense of morality that is a much lower sense than, than us, but they have a sense of justice. So chimpanzees will retaliate. They understand a sense of justice. They understand that being attacked is what, what is right, what is wrong. They understand these concepts at a very low level. I mean, at a primate level. They do have these, these, if we want to call them concepts or instincts, the morality instinct at that low level, it exists in nature. It's not something that 
So, for example, this gives the assumption that human beings are totally dumb. Like, human beings had no idea that to kill was wrong until the, the commandment came that thou shall not kill. And then human beings said, ah, oh, we shouldn't kill. <laughs> That's stupid. Of course they knew that to kill was wrong. The commandment simply came as a reinforcement. They knew that anyway. The commandments came to tell them that to reinforce the, the, the significance and, the, and how sacred this law is. That's all. It didn't mean that if the commandment was never revealed, people had no idea. They would just go around killing each other. Like, oh, have I done something wrong? I didn't realize. <laughs> that's, that's absurd. Human beings, of course, we can decipher these things, right? So to say that, look, we have, if there was no, if there was, if you were to remove scripture, human beings would not have a morality. That is a flawed argument. And if we're to be honest, if we're to just observe the world as it is today, most European societies, which are definitely secular, have arrived, I mean, I'm not saying they've arrived at a perfect ethics, but they've arrived at ethics without God, if we're to be honest. And their ethics definitely seem to be much more ethical than the Muslim world, if we're going to be honest. Like, let's just be honest about that. You And I gave the example to somebody the other day. I said, look, let's just be honest. Like, if I'm in the UK, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm going to buy a car, and I have an option of buying it from an English guy, a white guy, and I have an option of buying it from a Muslim. And this is very unfortunate to say this, but <laughs> I'm going to end up choosing the, uh, because I'm going to think mm, Muslims. I know that something's going to be dodgy with that car. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say that, but that is unfortunately the reality on the ground that we we know that we are very dodgy in many things. We don't have a good sense of ethics. And that's being born and raised here. In the Muslim countries, they totally don't, we don't trust it. We, you don't trust things in the Muslim countries, let's be honest. It's heavily corrupt. If you went to Pakistan, you wouldn't you know, trust what's going on there. So if we just be honest, let's put our biases aside. They have kind of arrived at ethics without God. So I, I disagree strongly with this kind of derision of saying, oh, well, you couldn't do it without scripture. You couldn't do it without scripture. You could because scripture was just, remember what I said, it was the Kinsung kind of, it was just, uh, I mean, the Kinsung, sorry, the hypothesis that it was just what society already had anyway. So, yeah, so I thought that was quite important to, to emphasize that. The other thing was that if we were to take the example of, let's say, ethics from, if we were to reject that human beings continue to develop in ethics, then by that example, Muhammad Hijab would have to accept, if he denied that, he would have to accept that slavery today is is fine 
But there's nothing wrong with slavery because in the 7th century, slavery existed. So when the Quran was revealed, slavery was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. And the Quran acknowledged its ubiquitous nature. It just kind of just took it as a given and just carried on. It didn't kind of really address the issue because it knew that to address the issue right now wouldn't be the time to address it. So if you are to claim that our morality does not develop over time and ethics do not evolve, then, and we must only go by the ethics that existed in the 7th century, then today you'd have to argue that slavery is fine. You may say it's illegal, but it's fine. Like if I, to enslave another human being, you'd see nothing ethically wrong with that, on a, or morally wrong with that on a personal basis level. But you might say, well, society doesn't accept it, but I think personally it's fine. You'd have to argue that, which I think is once again ridiculous. So, so these things, robbing the agency from individuals. Individuals don't think like that. You see, when a person has a liberal attitude today that he doesn't want, he doesn't like people being authoritarian, that doesn't mean you have that attitude because you read a ton of books by John Locke. And it doesn't mean that you have that attitude because you've been reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I mean, you may have, but most people haven't been reading Jean-Jacques Rousseau and they haven't been reading these kind of philosophers. They just have that feeling. And they have that understanding. They're not automatons. They can't think for themselves. The, the other issue would be that if you took this, if you took this principle then that's to say everything in Islam that was first championed by other people must belong to them and we must honor them. So that's like saying because Aristotle, because Socrates spoke of God and the soul before Islam did, therefore if we speak of the soul, we have to believe in what Socrates said. Or we have to acknowledge everything goes back to Socrates and to Plato because they spoke about it before we did. So, I mean, but this is a this is a theory that infantilizes. It treats um, human beings like infants. It's not true that human beings, we are very capable agents. We are constructing our worldview as we're going along. So normal. So you can stop a person on the street and he will be against certain matters. Like, I'm against capital punishment. If you stop people in England, most people, sane people, thank God, and in Europe, thank God, sane people are against capital punishment. If you stop somebody on the street and ask them, would you agree with capital punishment? They will say no. Is that because they've read Jean-Jacques Rousseau? Or is that because they agree 100% with John Locke? Or is it, have they been, you know, pondering over the arguments presented by Jeremy Bentham? Have they? Of course not. Most people have, many people may, some people may know who these people are. Other people may not even know who these people are. But they, on these aspects. So for me to reject death penalty today and... 
you know, if you're going to find a philosopher that rejected it, let's say Bertrand Russell, if you're going to say, well, Bertrand Russell kind of rejected that as well, I'd say, well, great. Awesome. Rock on. But does that mean now I have to agree with everything Bertrand Russell said and for you to find something that Bertrand Russell had said and catch me out on it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So this was an important factor. The other thing was that there was this a huge discussion that Muhammad Hijab had about the death penalty. And he said, well, look, ah, but America and about apostates. And he said, well, Islam. And I feel here that Muhammad Hijab kind of, um, he was semi, he was kind of like slightly hesitant. Um, I think Muhammad Hijab has probably moved on from the Salafi Wahhabi understanding of saying, and some other people's understanding of saying that we should kill apostates, but he's probably too worried to say it out publicly. So he's taken the stance that apostasy is treason, which fine. I, I, I agree that I feel that many scholars did feel that apostasy was treason in later, especially in the later uh, in, in centuries. But may I remind Muhammad Hijab here <laughs> that most of his favorite scholars that he always would quote would disagree. Heavily, Ibn Taymiyyah and all these people, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, all these people will say, kill the apostate. Kill the apostate. <laughs> they would have no mercy. And the overwhelming majority of ulama in the past would have said, kill the apostate. So here, he, I, I like it. <laughs> but this one naughty naughty, you know. So Muhammad Hijab, he here has kind of like abandoned the scholars for the in light of reason, and I like that. Uh, but he, uh, I think he he tried, <laughs> he did it on the sly, slightly <laughs> like, is anybody looking? No, <laughs> I'll jump ship, which is great. I love the fact that he's jumped ship on that and he's saying that it's about treason and not about faith. Although he was a bit unclear in between. He was trying to say, well, you know, uh, he wasn't being... And he spoke of an Islamic state and an Islamic state and I don't know what on earth an Islamic state is. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different discussion for a different day. Uh, but this thing of... And then he said, look, well, you can kill people today in the amendment and... Um, in the American whatever constitution and certain amendment and certain articles and, and certain states still allow capital punishment. Aha. So what are you going to say about that? And he said, well, if somebody comes to you and they argue against capital punishment, then you're going to say, well, aha, you know, John Locke and these people and these, did you know they believed in capital punishment? And he spent, aha. And do you know in the American Constitution and in the in in the Bill of Rights and this and this amendment it said this and in this article it said this? Aha! What would you have to say? But he completely ignored the fact that the other person will just say, Well, I don't care. <laughs> I condemn that too. 
<laughs> Why would you assume that there is an allegiance? This isn't a religion. If British law had capital punishment, then I would condemn it. I don't give a damn if it's in the unwritten constitution of the UK or the written constitution of America. I wouldn't care less. I couldn't care less. If it's wrong, it is wrong. I don't have no allegiance to some Bill of Rights or some constitution if it's wrong. So I don't see, and this sentiment that I'm saying is shared by so many people. Because this, what, what is meant by liberalism in the sense that you are against authoritarianism is a sentiment. That's all it is. It's just a feeling. And that feeling, people have it. Some people may have had it hundreds of years ago and other people may have it today and some people in the future. But it doesn't mean you have to be. It's a kind of tribe that, oh, once you have it, you, you're stuck with the tribe and everything that whole tribe, <laughs> you have to dress like them and walk like them and talk like them. I mean, that's uh, ridiculous. Somebody asked, what have I got against capital punishment? <laughs> I have answered that in other places, but look, let, check this out. The state says to kill people is wrong. It is wrong. To kill anybody is wrong. And to, okay, just the network slightly lingered there. I find that so ironic that to stop people from killing people, we kill people. <laughs> That's like, imagine somebody around here was breaking the glass of windows. So we say, stop it, stop it. And then we smash a window to show them that stop smashing windows. <laughs> stop killing people. Otherwise, we're going to kill you. <laughs> find it absurd i feel that human beings can rise above that and alhamdulillah we have that on earth we have that in the european especially in in europe um and in other, some other parts of the world there is no death penalty okay so human beings have that capacity don't underestimate what humans can do see like people will say yeah but if you don't kill people then it's going to go out of control, but it doesn't. Look at Europe. I mean, it, what, it's not perfect, but it, it doesn't go out of control. That's all I'm saying. So, yeah. Right. So, I right. Just coming back to this Muhammad Hijab thing and to wrap that up. So, I feel that, look, um, there was a lot of talk about uh, this, about the death penalty and giving traitors uh, treason, people who have committed treason, the death penalty, as a justification that it's okay to kill people for changing their faith. I find that stupid and absurd as an argument because, look, but then what, to be fair, Muhammad Hijab did put the caveat in there that, oh, well, is it really about faith? It's actually about allegiance to a state, right? So, okay, so there was, there was some uncertainty where he lies on that principle. That said, I... I respect that move of his, but 
overall, I feel that justifying this, bringing in death penalties from America and things like that are a poor argument. And they don't justify anything. Um, and to say that, look, uh, so there was this point where he said something about, uh, look, without scripture, you guys would be nowhere. And Islam gives, Islam always gave sacred rights. I, that's it. There was a part where he spoke about voting and he said, look, this is only 100 years old. Uh, women have been given, you know, the suffragettes movement and things like this. But Islam gave these rights 1400 years ago. Sure, look, these kind of things are nice. But look, you've got to be real. You are not. If you if we were talking in the time of the suffragettes, then that's fine. Islam has surpassed them and it has given many more rights. But we are talking in 2019. Everybody that's alive today is not from that era of the suffragette movements and, uh, and the civil rights movement and stuff like that. So to them, it doesn't matter. It's not about saying, aha, but, you know, we said that. Th their point is, but what are you saying today? What is Islam saying today? Okay, it was great. If you're saying it, you know, 1400 years ago gave the right to to vote. But why is it still backwards today? This is the question that they're going to have. They're not going to have this. Oh, wow, that's awesome kind of thing. So I think we have to always keep it real. So th there's no harm in mentioning these things when the time is right. But it really isn't something to be gloating over if you're going to be pushing rulings that are still out of sync and out of date. So that's my point there. And the other thing is there's a lot of blinding with um, with terminology. So in the talk, like when you give when you drop a lot of philosophical names, uh, philosophical arguments, the, the kind of terminologies to do with them, things like this, it, it gives the impression that there's a lot being said here. But the truth is there isn't. And a lot of those things aren't really that relevant. And this was one of the problems that some people were doing when arguing against atheists and the arguments for God. They were doing the same thing. They were just mentioning constantly philosophical and, you know, you've got the categorical uh, imperative and you've got this and you've got that. And they're mentioning a lot of philosophical terms, which sound impressive to people who don't know what they are. They sound like, wow. I don't even know what that is. This person is so learned. But what it does to people who do know and to non-Muslims, it further it we it makes you look much weaker than you actually are. So if you are going to take on an argument and I remember has no relevance, very little relevance to the discussion. Like if I'm just discussing and I just keep throwing in jargon. I say, oh, well, the, you know, the ontological perspective here sheds, uh, it really challenges uh, some uh, angles of the categorical imperative, which then was really, um, which, which was really quite fascinating when viewed from Hume's perspective of, uh, um, uh, of the scientific unpredictability, uh, which then, when viewed in light of the quantum entanglement, I mean, what the hell am I even saying? 
I mean, it's not just about just throwing, <laughs> you know, just, okay. Uh, it's, it's like my point is take it by the horns and deconstruct it if you are going to. Don't just blind people with jargon. That sounds quite impressive, but it has no relevance. Um, it has no relevance because it just shows that you actually did a very poor job uh, actually dealing with the issue. So if you were to speak about liberalism, the real argument would be, how do we define it? What is, are there some fascist versions of liberalism today? And I agree that there are. Are that can they be dangerous? Yes, because fascism in any form can be dangerous. And to just present that, to say make liberalism a separate religion, what does liberalism have to offer Islam? Is a ridiculous, these are not separate, like Islam is a religion. Liberalism is, is, a, is a way of kind of thinking and an attitude. So it's an attitude that doesn't like authority being asserted on it. Now, how does that manifest itself in many shapes and forms? So yeah, so overall, I felt it was a it was a poor job at really taking down liberalism. It was there was a kind of straw man argument that was made in the sense that it was all resting on John Locke, uh, Ho Ho was it Hobbes and Hobbesian kind of philosophy and uh, Kantian philosophy and and then just taking that down and saying well. Look, oh, well, they based it on God anyway, so don't you talk to me. And there was a huge, there was a lot of that. So, yeah, so that was my thoughts on it. I hope maybe Muhammad Hijab might watch this and think about it. And, yeah, I mean, <laughs> maybe not. Shalom, you get it. We'll say it nevertheless. Cool, people. Whoa, is that the time, people? Is that the time? Right, let's take a quick look as... Uh, 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 Right, so he, let's take a quick look at some uh, masala segment, people, masala segment. So we've got, what have we had uh, going on? There was, uh, right, so with the Hassanat case, right, we've had some developments. It's quite interesting, quite fascinating. And the developments were that uh, Ruxana G, <laughs> Ruxana G has come out and fully, with, with a kind of back support, fully thrown her husband, catapulted him under the bus. <laughs> she said, I was completely brainwashed by this guy. And I, you know, have no idea. He just completely controlled everything. And he's a wretched human being. <laughs> wah, wah. Now, I don't know whether... <laughs> I don't know whether this is some kind of if this is some kind of a a a, a plot that's being co-conspired. Then fair enough. If not, then off oh, Hasanat Hasanat off 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 Hasanat has been oh, stabbed in the heart, people, by love <laughs> betrayal. <laughs> Oof, ishk, 
Ishkamina, Ishkamina, Ishkamina. This, this is, this is what's going on, people. Ishkamina. <laughs> Shahrukh Khan was right all along. Ishkamina, right? But this is, uh, this is the, this is the problem. <laughs> this is the problem when we don't take heed, when we still go ahead. So she has fully thrown him under the bus. She said, "Well, I don't know. Uh, he's to blame. He took care of all of this money and everything. Ask him." He's completely wretched. He belongs in the pits of the of hell. <laughs> ah, right. So I guess um, that's that's that. There was something else as well. Before we go, I'll see if I can bring this up. Somebody sent me a clip. I'm gonna try and bring this up. Right. Uh, let's see. This clip, people, was. Um, Right, so this is a guy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know this guy too well, but Abu Taymiyyah. But I want you to listen to this clip, right? If we can hear this. All right, let me just put the volume up. Deficiency in Tawheed. This is more what? Do you know my brothers and my sisters? This is a deficiency in Tawheed. This is more worse than a man having zina with his mother. Wait, wait, wait. The the question is, can you say I swear on my mum's life? Do you know my brothers and my sisters? This is a deficiency in Tawheed. This is more worse than a man having zina with his mother. Saying, saying, I swear on my mom's life is worse than having sex with your mom. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, yes, love. I don't know. Is is like. Because when I heard that, I was like, Whoa, what? what? <laughs> How? On, on what scale? <laughs> you know, on the scale of how bad things are, where do we put having sex with your own mom? <laughs> do we put it just right there at the, at the beginning? <laughs> Is it like, just right be right beneath having a strong headache <laughs> it's like it's like where, where do we where do we put this this is worse than having sex with your own mom i mean how is that? <laughs> i'm thinking you know my scale where that would be up there with like I don't know, like triggering another Chernobyl <laughs> nuclear disaster. <laughs> I'm thinking, have I got the scale the wrong way around? <laughs> Is it like those people who drive too slowly when approaching a left-hand junction? 
and then they're a, a special breed. And, <laughs> and then after that, at that scale, those who have sex with their own mothers. <laughs> and after that, those who still don't drive off when the lights have turned green. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Where does this, how does this scale work? <laughs> Are we... <laughs> I'm I'm thinking <laughs> I'm I'm like the only one. Everybody else is like, mashallah. 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 <laughs> I'm thinking, wait, I'm sure saying I swear my mom's life. Mm, it doesn't quite feel on par or above actually having sex with my own mom. I mean, what a sick and disturbing, <laughs> what an abominable, abominable concept. <laughs> God, honestly, I had to check my own <laughs> ethics standards and morality and think like, have I got this the other way around? Is this supposed to be like triggering another Chernobyl is right at the bottom. That's just like a given. <laughs> and then it's like, I don't know, man. <laughs> well, I thought I'd share that with you guys. People, it's been awesome. Shukran for your patience. Shukran for staying on. Guys, right, till next week, I'll leave you to it. Have an awesome week. Take very good care of yourselves. If I do have that discussion, I'll post it on Facebook or I'll let it be known. So do watch this space. Remember me and your kind du'as, right? And remember, above all people, keep smiling, keep laughing, spread love and humanity. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.